Hello and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan and today I'm joined by Sean Jensen, a camera operator on Killjoys, Orphan Black, and Ginger Snaps, just to name a few of his credits. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. Starting off easy, can you describe what you do in your role as a camera operator? That's perhaps the hardest question to answer. It's, it's funny because, yeah, it, that is a difficult question to answer. I, I would say that most people have no real idea what I do. Um, in my opinion, most people think I do what I'm told to do by the director of photography or the director, which is only partially correct. Um, as a com- camera operator, the first and most important part of my job is to know the script, to know the emotional beats of every scene um, and everything. Uh, in everything I do, I... I must serve the story. Uh, without knowing the story, I can't do my job properly. It's, I, I guess it's kind of like, I, I could wing my way through it, but if I don't know what it is, I'm just not gonna do my best work. I mean, it, it, imagine like building a house, a very complicated house without a blueprint, right? Like you could probably fudge your way through it if you were handy, but you certainly wouldn't do your best work. So operating camera is, I think, more complicated than people understand. Being the A camera operator, which I predominantly do, is very different than being, say, the B camera or the C camera operator. The responsibilities are very, very different. Essentially, when uh, explaining the technicalities of what I do, I guess I could say that I work very closely with the DP and the director in deciding how to shoot every scene. And when I say shoot, I don't mean light, I mean control the camera. Um, is it a handheld scene? Is it steady cam? Is it a dolly shot, crane, a gimbal, a static shot? Um, sometimes the director has an idea how to do it that I don't necessarily agree with or even understand, um, at which point I can do it how they envision or I can offer other ideas that might be more effective. Sometimes it's a real balance working with artists and their egos, and, and I don't mean egos in a negative way. Um, some people are just very specific or have tunnel vision on how they want to uh, to do something. And that's fine. So learning to work with different personalities quickly and efficiently is a really important part of my job as well. Um, when uh, the, the shots and style of shooting are decided, then I work very closely with the camera team. And you'll hear me say work very closely with a whole bunch of groups of people now because I work very closely with the camera team to determine what lenses and other camera support is needed. Do we need more than one camera in the very first shot? Do we need more than two cameras if we have more than two cameras available? I work closely with the grips and electrics to get the physical placement of the lights and grip gear to work with the current shot that we've discussed and agreed on. Um, I also work very closely with the actors. I watch what they do in the rehearsals. Uh, so I'm ready to move the camera if need be um, at the appropriate time when we're shooting, working very closely with the dolly grip. The camera, for the most part, is on the dolly more than it's on other devices, D- depending on the show. But generally speaking, yes. So I'm working very, very closely with the dolly grip in determining when to move the camera, how to move the camera, if there's going to be a rise or a drop in, in the shot physically with the camera. So they kind of become a secondary camera operator because they are responsible for camera movement as well. So. Is that something that you'll kind of choreograph with them in the blocking or is the, do you cue not, them? Not in the blocking. I will, I'll, the, the blocking is done by the director and everybody watches. Well, it, unless it's a private blocking, then it's just the director and the actors. Sometimes private blocking, uh, blockings involve key members of departments, the key grip, the, the, the gaffer, the director of photography, myself, another camera operator. Um, and we'll watch how the director is planning on orchestrating the scene, how they're thinking of um, the placement of the actors within the scene, within the set. And then through discussion after the blocking is complete or sometimes during the blocking, if certain actor placements doesn't work for lighting, if the director of photography is like, I can't light the scene from this side because this small wall on this location as opposed to a set, let's say, doesn't move. And that's where I would have to put the key light. We have to put the cameras on the other side or something like that. Anyway, once that's all determined, then while the lighting is going on, I work out with the, uh, with the dolly grip where the camera's going to go, how it's going to move 
if it's on the dolly. If it's handheld or Steadicam or gimbal, the dolly grip is most often my spotter as well to work there with me to make sure I don't say fall backwards over a, an end table or something. If I'm backing up handheld dolly or Steadicam or gimbal uh, mode, you know, so they, they really are there working with me so, so closely. The stand-ins, working closely with the stand-ins stand is, is crucial. A good stand-in team can make the difference between success and failure because their good stand-ins will really be watching the actor's performances and they'll often catch little things that I missed while I'm focusing on other aspects of the scene while the blocking's going on. They can and they do save my bacon so many times. I always talk to the hair, makeup, wardrobe department when the blocking's done because I need to know, is there something about a wig line that I have to watch for? Is there a quirk in a piece of wardrobe that they want me to avoid? Uh, does the lead actor have a pimple that I can hide perhaps by moving the camera a couple centimeters to the right or to the left or having the actor stand a little differently or maybe we just move one of the lights a little further around just to hide that blemish so it's not as obvious. I mean, pimples are pimples, what can you do? But this is part of my job. As far as sound goes, is the lav mic in a different place today for some reason? Is there room to swing the boom properly? If not, can I help with that by uh, moving my body closer to the camera or maybe the dolly can be moved subtly without compromising the shot so the boom operator has room to get in there and do his job or her job? Uh, are there shadows the boom is creating that the boom op can't see from their vantage that I'm spotting? So I'm looking for that as well. So does an actor have a nose hair that's catching the light in a weird way that's distracting? I'm watching for that. Do they have boogers? I'm watching for that. Is the lighting unflattering to our leading woman or man in an unintentional way? I'm always watching for that. The list is almost endless for things uh, I watch for, as well as being able to operate, say, like a very heavy steady cam, very precisely for a long and complicated shot. Yeah. So all these things are constantly going on while I'm operating. If it's steady cam and I'm looking at the monitor, or if it's on the dolly and I'm looking at the monitor, I am always taking my eyes glancing off the monitor, looking around the room, making sure people aren't going where they're not supposed to go off camera. So as the dolly starts to do that push in or the steady camera, the gimbal or handheld or whatever, starts to do that push in and someone's in the way, I can wave them out of the way off camera where people can't see. So I, th I think most people don't realize what a crucial emotional effect the camera operator has in telling the story. Like panning the camera, for example, at different times in different takes of the same shot, can completely change the emotional intent of a shot or a scene. So understanding when, how, and if to move the camera, that's a skill that takes like years to master or to, to even understand. So I, I guess in a nutshell, that's what I do. <laughs> Thank you. I know, was... I, know, I, know, I know I missed a bunch of stuff, but yeah. Well, uh, hopefully kind of we'll a... catch it as we, as yeah, I yeah. start to interview you. But yeah, yeah, that's insane. That's a lot to be thinking about. Yeah. And it seems like this really great combination of creativity and intuition with also the more technical stuff as well absolutely to my knowledge you didn't go to film school um how did you Correct. get okay great how did you get your foot in the door at in the camera department well there's there's different ways to get into it uh the camera department the route i took was as you know jordan um i had a production company with other partners and we did little independent things. Um, I had a buddy going to film school who met a guy there who we became buddies with. And he had a buddy who wasn't going to film school. And the four of us got together, started a production company. We did low budget music videos, industrial videos, local commercials, stuff like that. At, at a certain point in my, in my teenage years, I was watching a movie and I saw a shot that was, I couldn't understand how they did it because there was, it was so smooth and beautiful. There were no dolly tracks in the shot. It was down a hall, carpeted hallway. I couldn't see marks from the tires on a dolly. And so I watched the end of the credits, like I always do, and it said Steadicam. And I was like, what the heck is Steadicam? So then my quest to understand what this tool was started. And I created a binder that was about three centimeters thick of pages that I had photocopied from magazines, uh, trade publications, anything I could find about this Steadicam. And I was just like, that's what I got to do. That's what I have to do. So my focus when we started this production company was to eventually become a Steadicam operator. That's what I thought was, that was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. How can you move a camera so precisely and so 
fluidly and not be on a dolly. So my dream was always to do that. And eventually with my, with my business partners, we bought a used Steadicam. And that at the time was certainly helpful in getting me to union jobs onto large format, like drama, TV series, movies, whatever, because there weren't a lot of Steadicams around. So I've been doing Steadicam for over 27 years. So it's, and now they're just very commonplace. It was not the norm to have a Steadicam on set full-time on a show back when I started in the business, especially when I first started doing union shows. For 10 years, we had that production company. At a certain point, I knew my career wasn't going to go anywhere in Calgary where I wanted it to go. So I packed everything up in my little two-door hatchback car and I moved to Toronto. I went and had interviews with rental houses, the, the business representative for the, the union, um, and was given... Uh, because I had already done nearly 10 years of work as a camera operator, they allowed me to join the union as a camera operator. And I basically haven't looked back. Like moving to Toronto was, was the best thing I could have done for, for my career at the time. It's very, very different now as far as getting an in, um, because you, you can come from the indie world and get into the film business, um, like in the position that you want to do, uh, it's a different route for sure, but, uh, but it's the route I took and it worked really well for me. That's great. So as you mentioned, you did grow up in Calgary as yep. well. Do you think that the prairies had any effect on the way that you approach camera? Absolutely. I think any camera operator or visual artist of any kind draws influence and inspiration from their surroundings. Um, having grown up in Calgary, being able to see the Rocky Mountains from the front hall of the house, knowing that behind me there was bald ass prairies going on for 2000 kilometers, you know, often filming out in the prairies and being out in the vastness of the, the Western prairies of Canada, it like it gives you a real appreciation for how massive the world is, how massive our country is, how small we are as people. But also, I look at the prairies in a very different way that, say, somebody from Ontario looks at the prairies. They, People can get from all across the nation can appreciate the beauty and grandeur of the prairies. But growing up there, I think I see vistas in a very different way than a lot of camera operators do because of that. Um, and that has served me very well in a lot of things that I've, that I've done. I think if you grow up in the city, you're going to have a very different perspective. Um, like, let's say downtown Toronto, downtown New York, some, like in a big city, you're going to have a very different perspective, how you see the world as a, a, a visual artist than somebody who grew up in the woods in a cabin, right? So it all plays and, and, and we can all draw, you know, strengths from these, these, the surroundings where we grew up. And I think definitely the, the prairies, yeah, yeah, they've kept me humble too, I would say. You know, just as a, as a person, it's like, you know, trying not to let one's ego, and ego, ego is a healthy thing to have. Confidence is a healthy thing to have, but, you know, being a prairie boy, I'm proud of that, absolutely. That's really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, and I completely agree. I have a, quite a few technical questions uh, because I do think a bit of a specific yeah. role. So um, yeah, just industry and technical questions Alrighty. for the people who don't know. So just starting out, at what point do you usually get brought onto a project? So me personally, at this point in my career, there are a handful of directors of photography that I normally work with. Two in particular. Um, one I'll be doing a movie with later this summer, and we've done over 20 shows together. That's features TV movies and TV series. Um, another one that I've done uh, several TV series with and features and as, as well, not as many as the other uh, DP, but, uh, but normally a uh, director of photography will just call me up and said, I've secured this movie or this TV series. Do you want to do it? At which point I either say yes or no. Um, I don't usually interview anymore and that's because and I say don't usually because I have uh, in the last 10 years and had some great success with working with new directors of photography um, that way but I don't usually because I I'm at a point in my career too having been doing this for over 30 years where I can pick and choose what I what I want to work on so I get a call from a director of photography saying hey do you want to do this movie with me that I just signed on to or I'm up for this film. Would you be interested in doing that? Let me know if you have anything else, any other offers, 
you know, so they can prepare themselves if they get the gig and they know I'm up for something else with somebody else that I've worked with. Generally speaking, that's how I get work uh, these days. In the beginning, there was a lot of resumes handed out to productions, a lot of meetings with directors of photography uh, and production managers and, you know, just the way everybody else gets a job, you send in your resume and you hope for the best. So is that kind of right before production starts or is that when the DP comes on? Uh, that's usually when the DP comes on to the show. So, and that is anything from a few weeks to a few months before uh, the show goes to camera. So like right now during COVID, you think, well, you know, it's, there's not a lot of productions going on. It is busier in Toronto than I have seen it since I moved here nearly 25 years ago. It is so busy. And I was booked on this movie last year. So I was, I was doing things and like once, once all the technicalities of the director of photography's deal were worked out and he actually signed the paperwork and his agent and they did everything that they needed to do. Then I was on the phone with a production where the, the line producer for this feature working out my deal. So that was done several months ago and we're not filming till mid July. So well, yeah, no, that's it's, it's different. It's different from job to job right now. It's just so busy out there. Um, and I think it's because the Canadian film industry has really done well in um, COVID protocol and protecting the, the cast and crew um, during these weird times. So like the, the series that I did that I finished with in mid-April, six months on a show every day, an N95 mask, as well as a face shield if I was anywhere near the red zone on set. And that was every day, all day, steady cam, handheld, whatever. I was always wearing that mask. Didn't matter how physically exhausting it was, no mask, I wasn't allowed to be there. And that went for everybody. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we really showed the world what, how to do it properly and safely because there have been very few instances of COVID uh, outbreaks on sets. Yeah, I've heard that as well, which is great. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a bit about the structure of the camera department and where you fit into that hierarchy? Who are you kind of under and who are you kind of supervising, you know? Who's, who are you the boss of, I guess? Okay. Um, and this is a very personal question, I think, because uh, different people see themselves differently and the, the role that they have on a film set. I am directly, I, I answer to the director of photography, who is my boss, but the director of photography is also the head of the grip and electric department. They've got the, the key grip and the gaffer who run those departments different unions and the director of photography, but they all answer to the director of photography. I would also consider myself under the focus puller. Technically, according to the union, no, I'm above the focus puller. Because if you want to talk hierarchy, camera trainee on a TV series or a loader or a second second on a, on a movie, then the second assistant, then the first assistant, then the operator. Well, he's the focus puller. He's my camera assistant, or she. I've worked with ama- many amazing female focus pullers, by the way. They are. They run the camera department. The A camera first runs the camera department. It, it's like I can be off doing whatever I want to do with the director and the director of photography. I have to tell them what my intentions are, so they can put the camera together properly. Most people don't don't understand too, and this comes back to what I do. I don't touch the camera very often at all. Like I don't physically touch the camera. I don't turn it on. I don't hit the record button. I don't put the lenses on. I don't put the card into it to record the media. I don't do any of that. It was the same in, in the film days. I didn't load the camera. You know, I didn't do any of that because that's not my job. My job is more of, now I'm different than someone who is, and I say it in quotes, just a camera operator, because I also do steady cam work. I'm a gimbal technician and operator as well. Um, I'm proficient with techno crane and fluid or remote heads and stuff like that. But again, that comes just from experience and time. But the focus puller is responsible for the running of the department, the other camera crews that are there, making sure that any special equipment that needs to be ordered for specialty shots that a director say on a series once that you don't want to have that piece of expensive equipment sitting on the truck, paying a rental for it the whole time if you're only using it once, they're making sure with the second AC that that 
equipment is being rented on time, that we have it in time to prep with it if prep is needed with it. Does the camera operator need to be involved in that prep work? Most of the time it's not if you have a very competent uh, focus puller first assistant. Um, so they basically, they run the show. Oh, we need other, the production's talking about a third camera crew and we normally have two on set. Okay, the, the first will tell the second then, book a third camera crew. This, the second AC is responsible for inventory, ordering expendables, ordering that, that special gear from, from day to day. You know, so crucial, crucial uh, job. And I've always hated the term upgrading. So you're upgrading from a second assistant to a first assistant. It's a completely different job. It's an entirely different job. The skills are not related at all. Um, like a camera trainee is there to learn how to be a second, to learn the, the protocols on set and how to work on a film set. The second runs the truck, the ordering of gear, the inventory, as well as often they'll be the one with the slate um, doing the clapping. Uh, but then the focus puller, keeping things in focus is very different from running to the truck to get a piece of equipment or to order a piece of equipment. It's an entirely different job. There have been many seconds that I've known who have upgraded to upgraded uh, to first assistant, realized they didn't have the aptitude for it and went back to being the second. And within the union, you, have, you only have a certain amount of time to choose to go back. Because once you've upgraded permanently, they will not let you go back to, at, after a certain amount of time, after a certain amount of jobs. So if you don't have the knack for it in this brand new job, that is nothing like the job you just were doing for the last five years, 10 years, three years, whatever it is, then I, I, I've known seconds who upgraded to first and then got out of the business because they couldn't do it. Um, so and, and, and being a focus puller, you, you can learn to be a focus puller. I mean, you can learn to do it, even if you don't have the natural knack of doing it, but you really got to get it. You have to have really get it. Uh, and there's some focus pullers, like the one I'll be working with on this movie. We've done, I think, 20 shows together as well. And it's just like, he just gets it. If a focus puller pulls focus at the wrong time, it destroys a shot, right? It destroys the emotional intent of the scene. There's another person who's, who's responsible for emotional intent in a shot, in a scene. It's the focus puller. They can make, make or break a movie. And it's like, it doesn't matter how great I did on that super hard steady cam shot if it's out of focus, right? So yeah, it's, there, there is a, a, on paper, a hierarchy, but in reality to me, yeah, I answer to the DP. The focus puller certainly doesn't answer to me. They answer to the DP. The second answers perhaps answers to the focus puller and the trainee will answer to the second, but no, the focus puller's job is so different than mine that I most certainly don't look at them as a someone down the totem pole for me. Right. Because they can make my day good or they can make my day horrible. So uh, I guess in your opinion then, like what makes a good focus puller? I feel like it's probably, a lot of it is intuitive in the same way yeah. that a lot of your job yeah. is intuitively finding in, moments and pieces. Yeah. But and, and some of that in, intuition comes through experience and some of it you're just born with. Some people just have a really great visual and storytelling sense, and some people don't. You know, it's I, there was there was a, a friend of mine in high school, and she played piano, and she could play any piece of sheet music she read perfectly. But she was only technical, so you'd hear her play it and be like, "Well, that's impressive," but it didn't sound like anything. So you put another person who could play piano who's not as technically proficient, but gets it gets the emotion of the piece and they make mistakes but it sounds a hundred times better than my friend could ever play it because she was just focused on the technical focus pulling is a very artistic um job there it is something that like it is to me the hardest job on the set oh my gosh i would never want to go back to doing that because it is so difficult i only did it in the indie world and i was only working with one or two different lenses so I got to know those lenses really well and the characteristics of those lenses. Whereas today it's like, oh, on this show we're using master primes or this show we're using the cook lenses on this show we're going with Panavision or whatever. You have to know how to pull focus on any type of lens and, and be good at it. 
Uh, yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy, difficult, and stressful. Holy smokes. Well, now, yeah. too, there's, you know, lenses that the aperture is just, and yeah. there's a real yeah. move um, towards shallow focus and anamorphic all, and all of that, too. Yeah. Also, also since film, uh, we do less rehearsals, even for very technical and challenging shots. It's digital. It's ones and zeros to shoot it. And if it doesn't work, we'll do it again. Right. In the film days, we would rehearse and we would work all the problems out. And if there was a problem during the take, the director would call cut and we would stop in the middle of the take. We would talk about it, fix the problems and do it properly. Because and a producer friend of mine I was talking to years ago, I said, so what do you think of this digital stuff? And he said, financially, he loves it as a producer because a thousand feet of 35 millimeter film was like $600 at the time. This is like 20 years ago. And then you have to process it. And then you have to choose the, the, the takes and pay someone to go through that. And then you have to make the work prints. You have, so it was thousands of dollars just to print 11 minutes of film. And you could only use it once. Now you buy a card for a thousand bucks or even less these days, it gets used and you get to reuse it and reuse it and reuse it and reuse it. So it saves literally millions of dollars over the, the course of a show. Like things have changed a lot since digital technology. And, and with that, it's like the death of the rehearsal. So knowing what you're doing, being prepared for subtle changes that the, that the cast might make on the fly while you're rolling, you know? It's like my, half the conversation I have with cast is like, okay, are you going to do it that way? Because you didn't do it like that in rehearsal. You can do that on take two. Okay, great. Just so I know just so I know, and I could be prepared for it because in the rehearsal, you went to the left. And since you were, you know, being in your trailer, waiting for lighting to happen and you came back, you went to the right on that take. And we set up the dolly to go to the left, right? So in a rehearsal, we would have seen that and been like, no, 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 you did it this way before. But yeah, so yeah, lack of rehearsals makes it even more difficult to do our jobs effectively. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so what, tools and equipment do you need to know uh, i'm going to start that again because i forgot okay. how to speak words <laughs> Don't laugh impossible me, <laughs> uh all right <clears throat> what tools and equipment do you need to know how to operate in order to be an effective camera operator okay so there are there are two parts of this answer one an effective camera operator in the union doing dramas and and uh and and big dramas and movies and stuff uh you need to know how to use a fluid head that's the only tool you need to know because everything else just comes with experience i didn't work with a dolly when i first started doing um film and television i didn't you know go, coming on as a b camera operator but we don't have the budget for two dollies and two dolly grips b cameras on sticks and a slider you go over there and use that all i needed to know how to use was the fluid head and it doesn't take very long to learn the mechanics of a fluid head if you're starting out that's kind of in my opinion the only thing you really need to know the more things you know about the better if you know what a gimbal is and how a gimbal reacts and various gimbals that's great if you uh know how to use um a remote head with wheels a geared head that's fantastic. I still work with camera operators today who've been in the business for a decade who don't know how to use the wheels. And that's just because they're never given the opportunity to, because that was the standard back in the day when cameras weighed 600 pounds. You had a big mechanical gear system to pan and tilt the camera. And then back in the eighties, I think it was O'Connor, the company that makes these fluid heads, the 2575 fluid head, uh, they changed the game by producing this fluid head that was robust and could handle the weight of, of the cameras and uh, you could do precise shots with it and stuff. So fluid head is the main thing. In the indie world, man, the indie world is so different. Like I said, I, I don't get to choose the cameras I work with. That's the director of photography and production that chooses that or the director. I don't choose that. So I can show up onto a show and it's like, well, we're using the Sony Venice. I've never seen it before, but that's not part of my job, building it, turning it on, dialing in the settings for it. That's not my job. My job is to compose and operate the, the, the shots. So it doesn't matter to me what cameras we have most of the time. If it's a steady cam shot, it matters if they bring in some big behemoth 
Um, if it's a gimbal shot, it matters depending on what gimbal we're using. But you know, I can just say this camera won't work with that piece of equipment. You need to get something different for that. That's that's fine. In the indie world, I think, uh, what, and what's so great about the way technology has changed is that cameras are affordable and they're small. So an independent filmmaker can go out and buy a good camera that's like 4K or better now affordably. Whereas when I was starting out, if I wanted to buy a film camera, like there was one camera I wanted for, for years. And the thing was, the body of the camera was tiny. You could hold it in the palm of your hand and it was 230,000 US dollars just for the body of the camera. No lens, no mags, no accessories, no eyepiece, just the body of the camera, $230,000. insane. Right? Because they weren't man mass manufactured in factories in third world countries. They weren't sold by the millions. They were built to order in batches of 10 only. So if you wanted one and the 10th one had just been sold from, from Aerie in Germany, you had to wait till the next bunch batch of 10 were built till they got 10 orders before they'd send you your camera. You know, so you have a, a factory, a small factory at that, building very precise things that are hand assembled, you know, made to order. Whereas now, you know, the tools of a filmmaker are everywhere. Yeah. You buy them on Amazon, you know, you can buy them almost anywhere. And that's amazing. It's so amazing. So there's so much content being made by young independent filmmakers makers, and it's really exciting to see because I didn't have those opportunities because getting into Steadicam, there were two models of Steadicam when I started out. There was the Steadicam 3A made by Cinema Products in Los Angeles, and there was the Steadicam EFP, which stood for electronic field production, and that was for video shooters who used beta cams and did corporate videos and stuff, and that was it. The EFP was over $40,000, and the 3A was about with a focus system was about $150,000. So that's it. Now you can buy a Steadicam off Amazon for, for a couple hundred bucks. That's right? insane. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So actually that was kind of one of my questions with the way that technology has progressed and with cameras being a lot lighter and more compact than they used to be. How has this affected what's possible as an operator over, you know, how has that changed over the course of your career? With, with the smaller cameras, the lighter weight cameras that are around, more affordable Steadicams. Gimbals are another incredible tool that you couldn't necessarily put a big 35 mil film camera on because they don't handle the weight. The cameras have become so portable that we're able to do now shots on the fly that were impossible to do even 10 years ago. Hey, uh, do you think we could do something like this? Yes, we can. We've got the tools right here. Yes, we can. You know, and it's and it really truly is incredible. Now, for Steadicam, Steadicam is still incredible. Can can be incredibly heavy. Like on with a film camera, it was like normally seventy to eighty pounds that I'd be uh, using on the Steadicam. Totally the whole the weight of the whole system. Um, digital cinematography when the Panavision uh, Genesis first came out, and that was digital. Um, it recorded to tape to HD tape. That was an 80 pound payload on the Steadicam. That wasn't any lighter. And I did a movie that was all done on the Genesis. Um, and I lost 15 pounds during that, that, that shoot because the movie was about 85%, 90% Steadicam. Um, I worked out to get fit for that, that movie. I got a personal trainer at a gym just to build my stamina. I would, stamina, I would run around my basement with my old Steadicam arm and a bunch of weights I'd bought at uh, like Walmart or wherever just to put weight on, to build my endurance and slowly add weight to it. Because doing you that heavy load for long takes, and the director and I talked about that movie for two years before we shot it. That was always her plan to do it Steadicam. I understood the reasons why I agreed with it, and we did it that way. So, but now, you know, you've got, you've got the red cameras, the, the, the Red Monstro 8K, you've got the, the large format Airy Minis. Like the large format Airy camera is a beast. The large format Airy Mini is not a beast. You know, the Mini is about 5.6 pounds, I think. And whereas the, the, the Mini LF large format, I think is around seven pounds for the camera body. Whereas the Airyflex LF 
oh, it's about 30 pounds, the camera body alone. It's massive. It is so heavy and I would never want it. And especially now getting old, I don't want to, I don't want to put that, my body under that kind of load. I don't want that kind of stress. And that's, what's exciting about it. The young, younger operators don't have to destroy their bodies over their career by schlepping around super heavy equipment. Yeah. So that is exciting. But the other thing too, on that film that was mostly Steadicam that I did, what was really cool back then, I think the Canon 5D was a very new camera and we did scenes on an airplane. And the director really wanted, the airplane was parked up at the airport. The director wanted to get the camera in the window well and have like one camera sitting next to the window, a space between, and then, or one camera, one actor, the space, and then the other actor, and wanted to be able to do over the shoulder shots of both of them. We shot the entire scene on the Canon 5D because we could put that camera, even with cinema lenses on it, in the window of the airplane and angle a monitor so I could see what I was doing and we could get those shots that were impossible with film camera without having a, an airplane set where you could remove half of the plane to put the camera, like move that sectional wall away mm -hmm. and, and get the camera where you needed to go. Wow. Like that's, to me as a camera operator, it's super exciting to be able, being able to place the camera where it was impossible to place it 10 years ago. Yeah, of course. Like that's incredible. So you worked uh, as a camera operator at Ubisoft for some of their AAA games as well, uh, mm -hmm. using virtual cameras. What yep. was that like for you? Because that's obviously another exciting new piece of technology. Oh my gosh, that was one of the best gigs I've ever had, I'd have to say. Just learning the way video games are made is, it's pretty incredible. Being able to go in there after the motion capture was done, and I was allowed to be part of um, some of the motion capture when I was available to be. Um, and that was great for the director because the director's working with the actors, blocking the scenes. And I'm thinking about how we're gonna shoot it cinematically after. So in film, your actors and directors get on set, they block, rehearse the scene, we light it, we shoot it, it's done. With Ubisoft, the, the motion capture was shot with the actors in their suits with all the little reflective dots and all the crazy see-through props and stuff so the, so the cameras could see everything, all those reflectors. All that data is sent to the, the technicians who then build, flesh out, in quotes, the bodies. And then we come back, myself in a dolly grip in the volume at Ubisoft, the stage that was called the volume, just the two of us, because the scene has already been done, the lighting's already been done, the characters have been fleshed out. And now looking at a video monitor, which was behind the virtual camera that is now on the dolly and panning the monitor around, I can see that virtual world that has been created, even though there's just the two of us, myself and the dolly grip, standing in the middle of the volume and creating dolly shots and doing these shots again and again. And the actors always hit their mark. The lighting never changes. We're never waiting for uh, hair, makeup, wardrobe touches. There's never issues with sound. You know, all these other problems that we experience on set are gone because the performance has already been finalized. And now it's just about telling the story cinematically, you know, and, and the creative freedom of working in the volume is like nothing I could have ever imagined. On a film set, if you want to do a really interesting shot where the, the lens is raking the ground and pushing in slowly behind an actor, you have to get a low angle prism or you have to do it on a gimbal or a Steadicam on low mode. And they're all technical pieces of equipment that are awkward to operate and time consuming to operate. In the volume, I just say, lower me into the volume two meters, please. And I could sit comfortably on the dolly and suddenly the ground goes from where my feet were to my eye level. Well, okay, I'm not two meters tall, but you know, you know, I could, I could ask for whatever. And then I would be sitting comfortably, but the world has now shifted. And the, and the lens is where I can do my job properly and efficiently, as opposed to be, being doubled over, bent over something, struggling to see a monitor to, uh, to operate a shot or impromptu helicopter shots. Boy, it'd be great to do a helicopter shot to start the scene. Okay, please take me, I don't know, let's say 20 meters in the air and 50 meters back. And then I'll dial in a lens with a button, a hundred mil lens, click, click, click. There we are, hundred mil lens. And we're gonna dolly the length of the volume. Now we're looking at the scene and we're doing it. What looks like a helicopter shot. It was so much fun and fast. 
it moves so quickly on a drama, not a feature, but like a TV series, a good day you're doing like with one camera, 25, 30 shots, like that's 30 shots, is an insane amount of shots on a drama. Okay, maybe more like 20, 25 shots. Our very first day using the V camera, when we were, when Ubisoft first built it, and we were first learning how to use it, we did 52 shots in that's one day. Crazy. And not in a 12 hour film day, in eight hours. Wow. You know, in, in one of our days, we did 80 shots with one camera. So these are, this is the, the freedom that we have to move. And even the dolly grip that I, that I brought in to, to work on those, he just kind of had to shake his head because everything just moved so quickly. When we first started, they couldn't rotate the world around us. They could raise and lower it, but that was it. So if we needed to do a dolly shot in a weird oblique angle, we'd have to move the dolly track and stuff. And now it's just rotate the world six degrees to the, to the right, please, or counterclockwise. Gook. We lay the dolly track down the center of the volume and we oftentimes leave it there all day long. We don't have to move it at all. Yeah, so wow. it's super cool. It's fast, it's fun. And like back, back to the, uh, the mocap part of it, you know, the director's blocking uh, the actors and I'm there watching and, you know, being able to whisper little things in his ears. It's like, we're not going to be able to cover it that way. That's going to block this actor when we go into shoot it cinematically. That actor needs to turn to the right when they turn around because the axis of the shots are going to be over here. So my experience as a camera operator in the film business translated perfectly to that, allowing the director to just focus on that and myself to focus on how we were going to shoot it to shoot it cinematically after the fact. It's such a great co collaboration with Grant on that. It was amazing. I'm so grateful that he brought me into that because that was that, oh, man, that was fun. That was That's so awesome. much fun. Yeah. And it's exciting to see the hype of these games, you know, because Far Cry 6 is coming out in August, I think. And because they dropped another trailer for it, it looks amazing, <laughs> blowing my mind. It's like, wow, I was part of that, right? And the other really cool thing about the video game industry that's so different from film, it's like, you know, I work on a TV series. Let's say it's a big budget series and they're spending five, six, seven million dollars US on an episode. Well, that's pretty impressive, you know, and we're doing 10 episodes. Wow, that's great. Video games are spending $200 million on and spending five years to make them, $250 million on them. It's the biggest budget stuff I've ever worked on. Yeah, and it's like it's, an Avengers movie. <laughs> And it's 10 minutes from my house, which makes it even better. Home for dinner every night, um, leaving at a decent time in the morning, 10 minutes to get to work, into a wonderful environment with great people who are all happy to be there. And we're making fun stuff, you know? And it, it is, it, it's, it's, it's a real gift to have been a part of those games that I've worked on there. And it's not night shoots in the dead of winter. <laughs> and it's like, boy, this scene sure would look great in the rain. And one of the wonderful technicians um goes tick, 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 and now it's raining on the virtual camera only and i'm dry as a bone Love or that. it's winter or whatever yeah night changing the lighting to shoot the the cinematic scene let's make it seven in the morning now nah, ah, let's make it seven in the evening eh, make it six fifteen. there it is the lighting's perfect let's shoot in this lighting that creative freedom is just unbelievable it's liberating after all the restrictions and challenges that I have on a, on a, a, a live film set every day, you know, and it's all part of the fun of, of the problem solving and stuff, but those go away and we're able to do anything we want effectively and bring a real sense of storytelling uh, to an industry where like it was good, but it's getting better. It's getting so much better, the storytelling, the scripts, everything in the video game industry. They're just getting, and I mean, not even to mention the quality of the animation. Like, it blows my mind. No just kidding, yeah. yeah. It's a really exciting space. Uh, yeah. But now I want to open it up to a few of my friends so that Good they thing. have a chance to ask a few questions. Thank you so much for coming on. The video game stuff sounds really cool. I was, it was. Yeah, it sounds really dope. Um, as a student, I was wondering, and I'd really like your advice on this. We, as students, we get into a location and then maybe we have like two hours, like a very small time window to kind of shoot. And I was wondering, like, yeah. I wanted to pick your brains on what's the best way to shoot like super efficiently without like changing the lights too much. Like how can we get everything that we need and make it still look like kind of good? 
Well, that's the challenge of independent filmmaking. Um, but it's also the challenge of, of like big budget filmmaking too. Sometimes locations that we shoot at, it's like, we have to be out of here by noon because our permits for the vehicles run out or if we're not out of here by noon, we're not going to get the rest of our day because we have another location move during the day. You know, so you, you just have to, that to me is the director and the director of photography working very closely together to determine a lighting setup that doesn't have to change except for maybe when we do that close up, we can just bring a little fill light in from one side or whatever. So the lighting is set up and doesn't have to change and it works with the storytelling. So those, those, sort, of, those sort of restrictions are, yeah, they're real, but, um, but they're really challenging. So it's, it's mainly the lighting that doesn't have to change and staying true to the story. So however you need to shoot it, and if you're, if you're stuck in a position because, because of time constraints, you know, if it does, the scene doesn't call for handheld because handheld creates a very different emotional intent than being on a tripod or whatever, don't do it handheld. Sometimes you're in a position where you're gonna have to, but you just try to control that handheld to make it as stable as possible. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have a gimbal or a, or where you can move the camera and do nice little subtle dramatic moves, that's great. Um, but the key thing is that the lighting doesn't have to change, that it's blocked in a way where you can tell the story and put the camera where you need um, and only have to supplement the lighting uh, from time to time. But the tools at your disposal will certainly determine how long it's gonna take. Putting something on a tripod is very quick. Putting something on a dolly takes more time. Uh, steady cam can be fast if it's built and efficient and you have a, a, a good camera crew to, to run it. Um, and same thing with the gimbal. But ultimately that is the director's blocking and the lighting that are gonna allow you to do it with that sort of a time constraint. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Hi. Um, Hi. It was great listening to you. Ginger Snap is like one of my favorite horror movies. So that was, so it was really cool listening to your perspective on a camera op. And I was wondering, since Ginger Snaps like has quite a bit of practical effects, so I wanted to kind of get your perspective on kind of the challenges that occur when working with practical effects and if like that is like a difficult genre for you. No, I love practical effects. I love practical effects. I think for, for the actors, the practical, practical effects are, are preferred as well because actors nowadays have to learn to act to nothing, acting to green screens to monsters and things that aren't there. The first Ginger uh, movie was a lot of fun to do. The first day I remember shooting with the beast in the woods, giving the, the stunt performer a break. And when he took it off, he, he tipped one of the legs up and like half a cup of sweat ran out because it was a foam rubber suit. And he, he went from, I can't remember what his body fat percentage was, but down to about 6% or something like that. Insane over the shooting of that film. Uh, one, one thing the, the practical effects give audiences is there's a real sense of that is there. That monster is real and it is there. Not real like they believe there's really werewolves, but it is a real physical thing that is right there. And it looks dangerous because it's real. It's not some gnarling, you know, drooling thing that uh, that has been computed with, uh, done on computers and stuff like on, on the on the sequel and the prequel, which we shot in Edmonton a few years later. That was the only time in my career that I've been hired before the directors of photography. That was pretty cool. But uh, on those ones, the, the, the company that did the effects, it was called KNB Effects Group out of Los Angeles. And they had just finished a, a movie called Kill Bill. And they like did big movies, Alien versus Predator and all sorts of huge things. And Howard Berger, who was the B in KNB Effects, um, came up to supervise all the werewolf stuff. And they did it. This massive Los Angeles-based effects company did that because they wanted to do a practical werewolf because everyone was moving away from practical monsters. And they did such an amazing job because these, these people were like the artists who created the suits, the technicians who understood how to build the armatures inside so the stunt performers could do it. Even the stunt performer that came up from Los Angeles who had done so much monster work in his career, he was amazing. 
because he knew how to work a practical suit and because he understood movement and animal movement and stuff, there was that real sense of danger and, and, and fear and gross. Sometimes it was just really gross because in the prequel, the werewolves were all mangy and, and, and diseased and stuff. And it, was, and it was incredible that way. I know the actors like, actors like practical effects. Sometimes you get it. How fantastical is this show? Right. Okay. Well, you can't actually have wings. We're going to have to do that with CGI and put you in a wire rig, you know, and that we get and the act and good actors are able to pull that off, you know, but um, it is, it is fun working with practical effects. However, the caveat is they do take more time because on set, they take more time because you have a stunt performer in a monster suit that needs breaks as opposed to, okay, here's, a, an effects guy with a little green cutout of a werewolf that they're going to erase him and they're going to erase the werewolf and put a real werewolf or a, a, a CGI werewolf in, right? After the fact. Things can go faster on set that way, but then take months in post-production to create that werewolf, right? So there's budgetary constraints as well. So for productions, which is cheaper and which is better and which gives us more freedom, you know, all these things that they have to decide. As a camera operator, I love the practical effects. I love them, love them as much as possible. Uh, but I'm also realistic in that it can't happen all the time. But yeah, they certainly take more time on set having practical effects, but it's fun. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome and good to know. Uh, all right, Denmark. Hello. Um, since we've got like so many digital cameras out there, especially cinema grade, like they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but does it really matter what those cameras bring or does it ma matter more how the camera crew would take advantage of those? And um, did you get to meet Giancarlo Esposito? Absolutely. I'll answer the second question first. Yes, he is a lovely human being. He is a wonderful guy. He's got great stories. And above all, he's an incredible actor and he did amazing things with that character in the video game. Um, the writing in that game was so incredible. They, they really hit some very good and important political stuff in that game. And I would like seriously encourage people to watch it. And I'm sure someone will do a super cut of the cutscenes and put it on YouTube or whatever, but you'll see what an astounding actor he is and what an incredible character he created for that, uh, for that, uh, that game. You know, that was his first time doing a video game. And he was excited to be there. And he's, and again, he was a lovely guy to work with. Just a really amazing person. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it was super cool because it was Giancarlo, right? Very cool. All right. Um, as far as the cameras go, because I work on predominantly union stuff and I don't choose the cameras, uh, I don't get to choose if we're using uh, Sony cameras, Airy cameras, RED cameras, whatever. I show up and I point the camera to oversimplify my job. That's what I do. Um, the exciting thing to me for independent filmmakers is because there is so much out there to choose from at different affordability levels that all offer something. Whatever equipment you're going to shoot with, whatever equipment you have access to or are borrowing or, or buying or whatever, yeah, just make the most of it. Stick with the one camera. Don't mix formats as in don't use a, a, a Sony and then use a camera because they're going to have a different look. Use the same lenses. Try to stay with the same family of lenses if you can, because lenses look different from each other. Um, so, like, uh, uh, you know, a Canon lens looks very different from a Sony lens, which looks very different from a Nikon lens visually. And captured with the chips, the chip technology is ra is so rapidly changing that, you know, it's. The, the camera on my on my iPhone is better than any video camera I've ever owned in my life. You know, like it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So just use the technology you have at hand and be true to the story. I keep saying that, but that's what it's all about. Storytelling, right? Sometimes it doesn't matter how good the image is if the story is strong enough that it can carry that. You know, I don't, I don't want my work to be noticed. When people are watching a movie, I don't want people to see my work because once they've seen it, they've been pulled out of the story. And as far as I'm concerned, I've failed at what I do. It's okay if filmmakers notice it, but if somebody's watching a TV show that I, that I worked on and said, wow, that was a really cool shot. It's just like, well, then I did something wrong, you know? 
So use the gear that you have, use the cameras that you have access to. I mean, if you have to mix and match, you have to mix and match, but be true to your story. Try not to mix and match, you know, try to stick with the whatever lenses you have. And if you have two different types of lenses, you have two different types of lenses. But to, to me, you know, looking at myself 30 plus years ago as a young filmmaker, looking at myself in high school and, and the feature film that I shot in high school for extra credit. It's just like, boy, if I had access to the gear we have access to now, that film would have won awards. It wouldn't have looked like this thing shot on VHS, if you guys even know what that is. You know, it, it looked like crap. It looked terrible, but there was a story there. And we learned a lot from making that film, you know? So have at her. Do anything you can to tell your stories with whatever, whatever gear you have access to. It's an exciting time to be a young filmmaker coming from an old filmmaker. Yeah. Thank you. Was that the feature film that you shot with John? Was that the yep. one? Oh yep. gosh, I really want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's being digitally remastered. Is, so oh, is John be, being put on Blu-ray? Yeah. Oh, good. I can't yeah, right? wait. Um, it's so bad. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Hello. That Hello. was a good, that was a good kind of final statement for that question. But I actually have two uh, questions. One's kind of a short one and one of the more serious, I'll with the more serious one. I was wondering how the representation of women in the camera department has changed throughout your career. And if you notice any differences. Excellent when you started. question. Okay, I'll, 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 okay, we'll go with that one. Um, when I joined the camera department uh, in Calgary, um, I didn't know any women in the camera department. There was one woman, I think from Edmonton, who was a second, and that was it. Um, moving to Toronto, I, for one of the first things I noticed was there were a few women in the camera department, mostly second assistants. Um, but then I got to work with a couple amazing, really amazing focus pullers. And I was fortunate to grow up with uh, amazing sisters and amazing female friends. Most of my friends in high school were girls. So it, it's always mattered to me um, to have female representation, especially in the old boys club of the camera department. It, it is changing. It is not changing quickly. It is frustrating to see how quickly it's not changing. I don't really understand why it's not changing faster than it is. I think more camera operators need to speak out about it and tell women you are welcome to do this. Like, please do this. Because if you don't know you're welcome somewhere, why would you even go there? The same thing with visible minorities in the camera department. If you're growing up in a neighborhood and an area where movies are just something you watch and you don't realize there's opportunities, to have a, a thriving career, not as a producer or a director, but even as a grip, as a technician. You know, you can have an amazing career, do incredible things, travel the world. I've been to, I've been to Eastern Europe. I've been to Hungary. I've been like all across this country doing movies. Like you can have an incredible career doing fun things, but if you don't know that those opportunities are available to you, then you're not gonna look for them. And I think uh, the union, my union is doing, is doing a fairly decent job um, trying to reach out to women to, to join the camera department, but we've got a long way to go. A friend of mine who was the B camera operator on Killjoys, Lainey Knox, she's awesome. She was uh, one of the first focus pullers I met when I moved to Toronto and worked with her a lot. Then we didn't see each other for years. And then the director of photography on Killjoys, Michael Marshall, uh, who was the director of photography on, on the Ginger Snaps prequel he's also from Winnipeg like Laney and he's like hey I want to hire Laney as a b-camera operator I'm just awesome let's do that you know Laney right now is, a, is the director of photography on a on a tv series that's going on which is amazing and she'll be doing b-camera on the feature that I'm doing in in the in the summer so she's working her way up as a director of photography and she's good she's really good you know but again there aren't enough women I prefer a camera department that is at least 50 50. I much prefer that. Um, and, and more than just the obvious less fart jokes and farting around the camera, 
but it, it because guys actually they behave better when there's women around they behave more professionally imagine that um for for whatever reason it's just a more professional uh set when there's more women in my department i feel so i i do what i can to to encourage women to join the camera department to become camera operators i teach at sheridan college sometimes um folks pulling for steadicam and i encourage all the women there to take up steadicam if they want to just because you're not some big hulking mass doesn't mean you can't operate a steadicam women actually physically are better built to operate steadicam than men are so that's that's something like two of the best steadicam operators in the world are women who do massive movies and stuff and people just don't hear about that we've got a long way to go but it's happening and i would encourage any woman who's interested in the camera and camera movement become a camera operator it is so much fun and you're wanted that's awesome we actually last year had she's a kind of DPing now but she was a camera operator uh and she came on and she said yeah her background because she did a lot of dance growing up and she was like it actually sure. that kind of movement and being connected with your body and improvisation is really helped her in oh her, yeah uh, yeah in her approach to sure yeah yeah the camera so I'll bet I'll bet that's uh yeah thank you for sharing that I'm actually curious, you mentioned there's the two best steady cam operators are a woman right now. Can you maybe, do you know their names? Yeah. Because I actually Liz, did not. Liz Ziegler. She did uh, Eyes Wide Shut, Wide Shut, which was a long time ago. Um, and Janice Arthur. Janice is in Chicago. And she's got some really amazing stories about being passed over as a, as a female steady cam operator um, of decades experience to, to men who have just gotten their own steady cams because they figure the men can do it better than she can even though she's like what's called a living legend in the Steadicam world. Like she's a master, you know, and she's incredible. And uh, I would I would love to meet her. Oh my gosh, I would love to meet her. Yeah, either one of those women. It's kind of a quick question. I was wondering, what is the craziest shot you had to do, camera-wise? I'll tell you an interesting shot. Because, I mean, crazy, crazy shots, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, action scenes fight scenes stuff like that you know there, there are always some crazy shots an interesting shot that i did uh was on a netflix series i did a couple years ago uh that was about ballet um the director wanted to start over a dancer in one of the dance studios and wrap the camera around and then slowly come down around her wrapping all the way to her feet um and it's like well how the heck do you do that and then continue on with the scene right as she's dancing so she's moving around and the camera is wrapping around her, slowly moving down. And what I did was I took my Steadicam and ripped it all apart. I took my super post, which is a five foot center post with the Steadicam. I mounted my Movi Pro to one end, my gimbal to one end. Um, and because I needed the camera to be as high as possible, I had to put a ton of counterweights on the other end and essentially created a crane that I wore with the Movi. And our B camera operator worked at the wheels to frame the shot. So I danced around with her while positioning the camera wrapping it around her as she was doing her moves right down to her feet from right over top circling over her like that that was a lot of fun to do that and i was tired after that because man that was heavy that was really heavy with all those weights on just to counterbalance it to get the cameras as high as we wanted it that was pretty crazy wow uh but i think that is it for questions okay. uh so i think the last thing that i have to ask you is for your five film recommendations which i asked you to prepare yes yes okay as a camera operator here come some recommendations for people aspiring to do camera and they're all good for for that the first one and i'm sure you've heard it before raising arizona the cohen brothers use the camera masterfully on all their films but in this one in particular they use it to great comic effect and you'll see in the baby napping scene that that they boy the way they use that camera with wide angle lenses and stuff that's a great film to to watch to see how the camera can can be used another one of my absolute favorite films is called road to perdition um it, the director of photography was conrad hall and the restraint they use in moving the camera at times really shows the emotion you can create by not moving the camera but it's also just a beautiful film and i believe he won the academy award posthumously uh for that film for best cinematography because he died shortly after they made it beautiful film 
Alien and Blade Runner, two of Ridley Scott's best works, as far as I'm concerned. Both of, both of those films used the camera very differently. Alien is a suspense horror film where its sequels are action horror films, very different genres. But Alien and Blade Runner, the original two films that really used the camera in amazing ways to tell the story. And the last one, it's one that you've heard of, and this comes right back to independent filmmaking, and it's something I really admire, is the Blair Witch Project. Because that was just a bunch of kids with a video camera, and they made their movie, and man, they made it big. And people saw it, and they didn't see the crappy gear. They saw the story that was being told, because they told a good story with that. Whether you like the film or not is kind of irrelevant. The fact that they were able to tell a story using consumer-grade equipment to such success is just a testament to what young filmmakers can do today. And that was from a long time ago as well, but they really did open the door for, for young filmmakers, I think. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, but that is all I have. So thank you so much Excellent. for coming on, Sean, and being so generous with your time, talking about your journey. And uh, also, yeah, I think this was a little bit more of a technical interview. So yep. it was great having the the kind of creative and, and life story part, but also having a little bit more technical knowledge of the camera department. So thank you so much. And thanks to those Absolutely. of you who asked questions as well. Um, but that is all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram or join our Facebook group for information about upcoming guests. New episodes come out every Saturday. 